I'm Dennis Levick. This is my lovely wife, Tracy. Hi, I'm John Rudnick. We're Barry and Anita Chenault. My name's Edward Devlin. My name is Rosalie Devlin. Hi, we are Brent and Sheila Howell. My name is Matt Leisman. Hi, my name is Hannah Rollins. My name is Chad Peterson. So evangelism to me is just basically sharing the gospel, um, outreaching to non-believers. I guess I work in a place where talking about being a Christian, talking about God uh, can almost be like a laughable subject. It's difficult to openly talk about um, being a Christian and, and the struggles of being a Christian or you know the, the happiness that being a Christian can bring you. Church, church for me has been the one of the few places in the world that I've been able to find good people. Church to me is just community coming together um, to worship God, hold each other accountable, um, serve the community, outreach, um, all those things. Good morning, Coastal. All right, great to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Do me a favor, get your uh, note sheet out. Take some notes this morning. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 17, so get your Bible out. I'm really excited about the message today, and uh, and so Acts chapter 17, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, hopefully there's one in a chair in front of you, and if you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. We would love for you to have a copy of the Word of God, especially if you'll read it on a regular basis. It really will change you and mold you more into the image of Christ, and and uh, while you're kind of getting that out and getting ready this morning, a couple real quick announcements. Next weekend is our trunk or treat. And, uh, and so if you would like to sign up for that, just signing up kind of gives us an idea how many are coming. You can go to our gocoastal.org backslash events and sign up so we know you're coming. And it's going to be a great night for the kids as well. So bring your kids out. And then secondly, we've got our pop-up shop. You know, a lot of times we, our ministries, uh, they get a hoodie or a t-shirt. And a lot of times we're like, how do I get one of those? And so you can buy one at our pop-up shop. And uh, we're going to place one big order and get it here in time, Lord willing, for Christmas. And so uh, if you want some coastal swag, we're, whatever the charge is for that, uh, I th whatever we make over and above, I don't even know all that, but whatever we, anything over and above the, the cost is going to go to missions, okay? So we're not making any money off this. Uh, it is really just for you if you want the coastal logo because we get a lot of, man, I'd like one of those. Okay, so well, here's what I want to do before I jump into the sermon. We're doing a series on evangelism, and uh, I want to train you quickly on how I share the gospel. Different people do it differently. Uh, in a couple weeks, Pastor Andrew is going to talk about how he shares the gospel. Uh, on your way, if you haven't picked up one on the way in, pick one up on the way out. This is your evangelism guide on how to share the gospel. And each of our pastor, teaching pastors, put in here, hey, here's how I like to share the gospel. There's different methods that you can use. You know, I, th I think it's St. Francis of Assisi that gets quoted a lot that says, always share the gospel if necessary use words. How many of y'all heard that phrase? Okay. And so it's a wonderful thing. We should live in such a way that people notice that there's something different about us, but it actually is necessary to use words. You, people can't see the good works of others or see creation. Romans 1 tells us there's certain things that a person can know about God by creation, but it's not enough to save them. We actually have to be on mission and we actually have to declare the gospel of Jesus, okay? So go ahead and put this slide up. This is what a person needs to know to have a relationship with their creator, right? Uh, taken from 1 Corinthians 15, there's three 
core facts that a person has to know about Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say it out loud. You're going to repeat after me because I want you to know these three core facts. Everybody that's a Christian should know these and be able to declare these. Core fact number one, Jesus is God. All right. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Man, that sounds like you guys sound like the dead saying that. All right. Like this is exciting news, right? These are the core facts of the gospel. And so if you're ever talking to someone that's got spiritual questions and you will say, well, here's the God I know. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. All right. And a person goes, oh, how do I have Jesus in my life? Right. And you say this. You need to turn from your sin, repent, believe in the core facts of the gospel. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. And you need to receive Jesus into your heart and life as Lord, as boss. That is how you receive the gospel. Everybody with me on that, all right? Now, if you ever have the opportunity to sit down one-on-one with someone, I like to use the Romans road. So let's put the next slide up. This is in your handout, all right? I actually now have this as an app on my phone, okay? And and, uh, and so, you know, I will sit a person down and they're like, hey, I, I need to know how to follow Jesus. Or if I'm talking to someone about they're going, their life's hard. And I say, hey, have you ever considered following Jesus? No. What's that look like? And I will open up the Romans road. And these are some key verses in the book of Romans that really lead a person through this understanding of the gospel. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross of my sins. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. Okay. And so, and so here's what I do. I open to the verse. So let's start with Romans 3.23. And I say, read it out loud. Now, the out loud part is very, very important because they could, if you just hand them your Bible, they could be reading the wrong verse silently. And suddenly they're, they're reading about circumcision. And you're like, what in the world are we talking about? Like, you know, so like, and so you read it out loud. And they read it out loud. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And then I look at them and I say, what do you think that means? And usually this is what I get, a blank stare. Like, I don't know. Now here's what I don't do. I don't tell them what it means. I look at them and say, read it again out loud, right? And then usually when a person reads the verse first time, not really thinking about it, the second time they read it and they think about it. And then I look at them and I ask a really important question. I go, what do you think I ask them? What do you think that means? Right? And they look at me, I guess, I guess everybody's sinned. That's right. That's what the Bible teaches. Then I take them to Romans 6, 23. And I say, what? Read this. How? Out loud. Out loud. Marty's the only one who's got it. Marty's an out loud kind of guy. So out loud, right? And then uh, what do you think that means? And I take them all the way through the gospel, all the way to Romans 10, where we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And then I will ask, man, are you ready to do that? You ready to receive Christ today? And if they say no, I've done my job. Did y'all hear that? If they say no, I'll go, I've done my job. I, I, I'm not, I don't convert a soul. I don't convert a heart. That's the work of God. My job is to be the mouthpiece. And so with that transition, let's transition this morning because that's what I'm gonna challenge you with this morning when it comes to evangelism. We're doing a series called Seek and Save. And Paul proclaims the gospel to people that worship an unknown God this morning. How many of y'all, one of my favorite comedians, you know, we go to the doctor what do we want when we go to the doctor? We want the truth, right? We don't, we don't want them to sugarcoat our diagnosis. I, one of my favorite comedians tells the story of going to the doctor. He sits down with his doctor and he's like, hey, I, um, I'm experiencing heartburn. I have 
acid reflux and it's miserable, right? And so the doctor goes over to his cabinet. He pulls out a sheet of paper. He hands the sheet of paper to this gentleman. And the sheet of paper has this list of foods that cause heartburn. And he hands this list to the patient. He says, if you eat these foods, you're probably going to get heartburn. You're going to have acid reflux. To which he looks up at his doctor and he says, I already know how to get it. (laughs) He doesn't want to change his diet, right? He wants to keep eating those foods. And so, you know, we go to the doctor, we we don't want just good news because sugar-coated, we want the truth, right, of our diagnosis. You know, when we talk about evangelism, we have to do our job. We have to talk about a holy God and things like sin. But man, we also have this, evangelism means the heralding of the good news. What's the good news? That God took care of our problem in Christ, and Christ has saved us, and he, he gives us abundant life. That's why you're here this morning, and you're singing with joy and enthusiasm because you know the abundant life found in Christ. And he also gives us eternal life. And we want others to know that hope. Our our goal in evangelism is not to unnecessarily make enemies, but to bring the gospel of Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 17, it's a great insight where the apostle Paul is preaching in Athens, Greece. And this is a, a, a group of people that don't have the the Jewish backdrop of the scriptures, okay? And so this would be a very non-Christian, or as I've been saying in America, like we live now in a post-Christian culture where not everybody you talk to uh, even uh, has a, a handle on the cornerstones of biblical stories, right? And so you're really, and in some ways, it's be growing hostile to Christianity. I think a lot of people are hostile and they don't even know why. It's just kind of the narrative that's being taught. And so I think this is a great sermon for us to look at the Apostle Paul. How does he approach a group of people that are not even culturally Christians? They don't even know the Bible. They're really, really removed. So let's jump in, all right? Now, before I jump in and give the main points, I want to, Paul sets up the backdrop, okay? The first thing we learn is that Paul recognizes that the people he's about to preach this sermon to or evangelize, they, 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 they're in a world full of idols, okay? So check this out in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, an idol might've been like a gold statue or something that, that represented a false worship or a false worldview. Now we know from Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans chapter one, that he unpacks his idea that every single person is a worshiper. Okay. It's not, when you're talking to someone who doesn't know God, please don't think, well, they don't believe in God or they, now they might not believe in the God of the Bible, but they're worshipers of something, right? Because we're created that way for our hearts to be captured by something. The problem with idols is they leave us in bondage, right? They don't actually send us into freedom. And so you might think we live, when I say post-Christian, you might think that nobody here in our culture or post-Christian world or they're not worshipers when indeed they are worshipers. They're just worshipers of idols. Now we no longer put little statues on our 
corner of our house. Some people do, but most people in America don't, okay? But indeed, we have our idols. Let me give you some of the idols of the culture. I think the number one idol we're facing right now is the idol of self, right? That a self is elevated to the object of worship. Uh, I don't know how many of y'all this past year when um, Justice Jackson was being nominated for to be a Supreme Court justice, she was asked if she could define what a woman was or is, right? And I don't, I don't know if you remember her answer, but the answer she gave was that I'm not a biologist. Now, um, she is appealing in that answer to the LGBTQ plus community, all right? But actually, her answer should have outraged the LBGTQ community, plus community, Why should it have outraged? Their argument on gender fluidity has nothing to do with biology. That's the Christian answer. The Christian answer is, in the beginning, God created a male and female in that he created them, right? And therefore, it is stamped on our biology that we our gender is stamped at the moment of conception, and therefore, even all the way down to the, the cellular and, and maybe even the subcellular level, I'm not a biologist, okay? So all the way down to the lowest level, our gender is made by God, amen? amen. What Justice Jackson should have said is, I'm not a psychologist. Everybody with me? That's the argument of the LGBTQ community. Our gender is fluid because it's who self tells me I am, right? Everybody with me? You're fighting an idol. Not mad at any one person. It's the false idol of self. By the way, great book. If you want to read, probably the best one of the best books I've read in the last two years is is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Incredible read on man. How did we get here in this particular world, right? And uh, he's now got a smaller version that I have not read called The Strange New World, but it's the same book. Okay, it's the idol of self, the idol of sex, right? The idol of sex, too, is number two. Like the second idol, sex. I just read an article this week of a New York Congress congressional candidate who has made and uploaded a porn video, and he's doing that because he's running what he's calling a sex-positive campaign. What does that mean, okay? That's code for what God has defined as sin, as immoral sexual sin. He's now taking, saying, no, it's sexually positive, and I'm going to run on anti-God view of sex, right? And so it's an idol, okay? This is an idol. Money, of course, right? Well, how do I know that money is an idol? Because we're $30 trillion in debt as a culture. We we can't stop funding on debt the life that we think that we deserve. It's an idol, right? The idol of government, right? The government is going to take care of me. The government is going to provide for me is an idol, right? It is our God who provides for us by providing us the ability to work and have a little leftover to share and those kind of things. That ultimately comes from God, not the government. Amen? All right, these are idols. Another idol in our culture, the idol of the earth is somehow fragile, the fra- we're making laws and, and we're developing things because we have this false idea that the earth is fragile. It's, the combustion engine is the problem. Am I making anybody uncomfortable? Listen, I, 
I'm saying these things not to be political. I'm saying these things to say that it's, it's a false worship. The issue in our culture is not politics. It's a false worship of what you believe. Listen, the earth will be here until Christ returns and judges it. Now that could be this afternoon. I'm going to finish the next breath and it could be, but it could be 10,000 years from now. The earth is not fragile. Should we steward the earth? Yes. We don't need to unnecessarily abuse the earth. Of course. But the earth is not fragile. And when I hear people running around say, man, any day now, it's going to be, you know, we're in such big trouble. Just acknowledge that's a false idol. It's a false view of worship. All right, point number one. That's the first thing, Paul, the, the area that Paul's talking. I'm not even to the point yet. Okay, I'm still, this is the introduction. <laughs> Paul acknowledges that the Athenians are religious, Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Paul throws them an attaboy, right? He doesn't say, I can't believe you have false worship. He goes, look, you're, you're religious. That's a good thing. You have faith. You understand that there's, some be- there's a being out there that, that, that you need, right? And he try- he does, he's not trying to pick a fight. He leans into Athenian culture. We see this in, in verse 23 of Acts chapter 17. Uh, Acts 17, 23 says, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So he says, I see you guys are religious. I see you worship something. And so now he latches on to something that they believe that he can then launch into the gospel. I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so now he goes, he's like, man, this is perfect. I can now talk about Christ. He says, what therefore, uh, what therefore you worship as unknown I'm now going to proclaim to you. So, I, so he's not picking a fight. He, he's not trying to say, why, unknown God, that's silly. No, he just takes where the culture is and he launches into the truth, right? He doesn't waste time debating particular sins. He doesn't waste time debating behavior. He doesn't waste time debating who should be president. Paul looks for truth in the culture. Why does he do that? Because all truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's from God, amen? In fact, I could even quote, if I had the right song or something. I can quote a secular song if it has God's truth in it, because it's God's truth. And in fact, Paul does that, as we're going to see a little way down in this sermon. He latches on to one of the poets of the Greek culture and says, listen, let's launch off on this truth point so you can know the true and living God. So all that's introduction. Here we go. Here's the message that Paul preaches. Number one, he tells the Athenians about the God who is, right? So now you have this unknown God. Let me tell you about the true and living God. Acts 17, 24. And the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by hands. So he's probably preaching to a culture to want all these false temples. He's like, God doesn't live in those temples. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Next time you think, God is needy. Just remember that God doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need you, quite frankly. You get to be a part of what he's doing, but he doesn't need you, right? Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything and everything. All right, so letter A here. God is the, Paul's teaching the Athenians, God is the Lord of all the earth and he's creator. God is creator, To ignore that there's a creator is neither rational nor intellectual. 
It's moral and spiritual. Listen to this again. That, that's out of all the, the scriptures are perfect. Always take them. Out of all things I've said, this might be one of the best things I said this morning. Okay, here we go. To ignore that there is a creator is not rational or not being intellectual. It's a moral and spiritual issue. There is no rational or intellectual argument that can possibly look at the precision and the design of creation and ignore that there's a creator. It is rational and intellectual to look at a house that is built and assume or understand there must be a builder. Yes? You don't drive by your neighbor's house and think this would be irrational to look at your neighbor's house and drive by and think, man, I wonder, that must have just showed up. Like what a random set of accidents. That's irrational. Because it's got some amazing systems in it. Amazing. The precision of the house and the way the roof is built to make sure that no moisture gets in so that you don't have mold and rot. And your plumbing system is designed so that all of the water comes in perfectly and leaves perfectly without, without damaging the house at any level. The electrical system, they'd make sure that the electricity is nowhere near the water, right? So you don't die. Like it's incredible the precision and thought that goes into your house. The HVAC system, where it comes in and the returns and how it goes out, it all has intelligent design. It is irrational to look at the precision of creation and go, man, random set of accidents, right? Book of Hebrews says that, Hebrews chapter three, verse four. Like the, all the stuff I just said, like genius, here it is, ready? For every house is built by what? We understand it got there. But the builder of all things is what, church? Right? The reason the issue is moral and spiritual and not rational, logical, and, and intellectual is that it's moral and spiritual because if there's a creator, then we would expect there to be some kind of judgment to be rendered by him. In other words, if there's a creator, we should assume that we will, we will give an account to this creator. The reason the world and the post-Christian world wants to ignore the precision of creation and come up with ridiculousness on how it got here is because if the ridiculousness is true, then I can do what I want with my life. Amen? You guys see that? And by the way, the Paul in this sermon makes it clear, right? That, that there's nothing that we build on earth that houses our God. Now I want to pick, I'm going to pick on a couple songs and these are actually songs I really, really like. So I'm not picking on like, man, let's, let's be careful. I, I want to frame it and make sure that when we sing songs as a church, we understand what we're singing, right? How many of y'all know the song, there's joy in the house of the Lord, right? How, how many like that song? Oh, never mind, it doesn't matter. Okay, so um, when we're singing that song, we need to be really, really careful that we're not singing it like, this room is the house of the Lord, right? There's joy in this room. And, you know, because that's where churches get weird. Like, don't bring coffee into the house of the Lord, right? Like, no, First Peter tells us who's the, who, what is the temple that God is building? 
right? It's us, right? And so why, is, why can we sing there's joy in the house of the Lord? It's when we as believers gather for corporate worship and we start singing together, there's something that God does in his grace that makes your spirit go, man, this is awesome. Amen, anybody do that? And so we can sing, man, there's joy in the house of the Lord. As long as we understand, we are what God is doing, not the square walls of the building. Everybody with me on that, right? And because there is no temple or house that houses our God. Number two, second song that I want to pick on in a little bit. And I love this song, but I think we need to sing it with understanding because Paul teaches us that God is self-sufficient. He's not needy, right? He doesn't need, there wasn't some point in eternity past where the Holy Trinity got lonely and God said, you know, I should create some people so they can be in heaven with me. And they create some, oh my goodness, it went wrong. They went into sin. Now what am I going to do? Like God, God is sovereign. He created the world and the way it is, which we're going to get to in a minute, because he knows best how to display his glory of his character completely. So here's the song, right? It's the song, What a Wonderful Name It Is. Love that song. But there's one line in there that I just want to frame that we understand when we're singing. There's a line in the song, What a Wonderful Name It Is, and where we sing, he didn't want heaven without us, right? Have you all remember that song? Anybody? Right. And so like, that's true because God is sovereign and he knew how to best display his glory. But we have to be careful as we're singing that line to understand God did not get needy somewhere in eternity past. Man, I sure need these people here, right? And Paul makes that clear. Our God is self-sufficient. He doesn't lack anything. He's the giver of life, letter B, all right? Secondly, that means God is the creator. What God is telling the, what Paul's telling the Athenians, God is the creator of mankind, Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man, by the way, if you want to circle where that's really important, I'm going to highlight that. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. There's where Paul quotes, you know, Bruce Springsteen or whatever, Bruce Springsteen the other day, kind of thing. Like, uh, we, why did I say Bruce Springsteen? That makes me so old. I don't know. Who's a modern artist? He quotes an artist, okay? And, uh, and he says, for we are indeed his offspring. So a couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, Paul affirms a literal atom, all right? There are so many reasons this is important. As Christians, this idea that Paul quotes, it says, man, there's a one man, all the nations, a literal Adam. This affirms the Genesis account of creation. Both Jesus in Matthew 19 and Paul in Romans 5 affirm that God created a literal Adam. This makes sure that, that you, you know, this brings into question evolutionary theory. It's a gospel issue. If there's not a literal Adam, then there was no need for a second Adam. Without the first Adam, there was no need for that second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes it clear, out of one man, all the nations were birthed. Everybody with me? He's affirming Genesis 1 and 2, that it stands on its own. And we don't need to manipulate it. Secondly, or letter B, he affirms the unfolding of history is for God's purposes. He says God has appointed time periods and boundaries. The world is not a random set of accidents. The world is not a purposeless unfolding of events. Whatever it is that happened to you this week, 
that troubled you was not an accident. God is working all things together for good for those who love him. God is working all things together for the praise of his glory. There is not a single thing that happens in the world that's an accident and is without purpose. By the way, you're not an accident. Everything about your life, God is using to display his glory. I don't care what your parents said about you. You're not an accident, all right? The world is completely under the sovereign rule of almighty God who is unfolding his plan to bring the most glory to his name and exalting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let her see, or number three, the third thing, subset here is that God is knowable, Paul says, and he's close at hand. One of the things that I hear often in our current culture is that people will say, I believe there's a God, I just don't know if I can know him. Okay, you ready? That is a cop-out and an arrogant excuse to live like a practical atheist. That's a cop-out to say, man, I, you know, I think there's a God, but I'm going to do what I want anyway. And Paul says as much. Paul says as much. He's like, I don't know. We're feeling, we're groping through life. I don't know if we can know the God. And Paul says, eh. no, he's close at hand and we know it. Amen. We choose not to do it because we want to live the way we want to live. Any thought that God is unknowable, Paul says, is a, a, a cop-out. He says, God's not hiding from us. So if you want to know God, he's nearby and you can receive him. But here's the deal. You ready? It's going to call into some questions, things about your own life, like sin and disobedience that needs to be repented of. And, and you need to turn and act and begin to behave because of Christ now in you, gospel, like the God that is. James chapter four, we learned this this summer, last summer, right? Four, eight, draw near to God. He's not distant. Draw near to God. And what will he do? He'll draw near to you. But here's the deal. If you start drawing near to God, what's gonna happen? You gotta cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, right? We don't draw near to God the same reason we don't go to the doctor for reflux. He's gonna give you the list of foods. You go, I know how to get it. It's the change that's the hard part, right? The third thing Paul makes clear to the Athenians, letter C, man should recognize what God has made clear to them. What is God being clear to them? Verse 29 of Acts 17, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because I want, you to, I want you to just think about this as I read it this morning. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, this is Christ he's talking about, whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance. Why do we know there's a fixed day of judgment? What's the assurance? He's given us this assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's John 3. John 3, what did Jesus say? I didn't come the first time to judge the earth. 
I came to save, to come, I came to offer salvation. What's he saying? At his second coming, there will be in a fixed day, a moment of judgment where everybody will give an account before almighty God. Paul here is making an argument using point number one, using Athenian language, right? He's, he's not using kind of our systematic, our Bible language, church language. He's saying mankind is made in the image of God. He says, basically, if you're God's offspring, then you're, you're made in the image of God. Why? This has incredibly important implications. It means that you're different than your puppy. Should we protect animals? Yes, of course we should. We should steward the earth. Of course we should. But humanity is different. You're made in the image of God. You have a soul. And you have reason. And you have intellect. You have self-control. We can and should expect our middle schoolers and our high schoolers to behave a certain way in their sexuality, because they are created in the image of God. They know right and wrong. Unfortunately, we've taught them that they've evolved from the gelatinous muck, that they're a random set of accidents. They're just not that much different than the animals, so just act like an animal. This stuff that we are teaching our children has really important implications. You have self-control because you're made in the image of God. You're, just not, you're not just a ball of hormones and emotion. So what's Paul telling the Athenians? You're, you're going to stand before God Almighty and you're going you're to be held accountable for your actions because you are made. He quotes their poet. You, you know, he quotes your poet and says, you're right about this. And this God, you're going to be accountable to him. Number two, Paul says, the gospel of Jesus has come. So in the past, God was patient, but now we're in the last days. The gospel of Jesus has come and mankind can and should repent. Listen, Paul bumps against eschatology here. If you don't know what the word eschatology means, it's kind of the idea of end times. Like, are we in the end times? Are we in the end times? Yes, You've been in the end time since Jesus ascended into heaven and you're going to be there till Jesus returns again. These are the last days. And so far it's been 2,000 years and it could, Christ could come tomorrow or Christ could come 10,000 years from now. But we are in these last days, the last act of God's big movement until the return of Christ. Christmas, we call the first advent, which means coming. And we're in the last days until Christ's second advent where he comes and he's affixed the day on the calendar and there will be judgment. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three, long ago, the the Hebraic, this is right into a Jewish culture. Paul Paul here is preaching to a a non-Jewish culture, which you can see the the subtle differences in his language, but the, the theology is the same. Long ago and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these what church? In these last days, he's spoken to us how? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Why do you say amen to that? You say amen to that because people run around going, I I don't think we can know God. What are you talking about? God sent his son 
And he's the radiance of God and he's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The earth is not fragile. It's being held together by Christ Almighty. Isn't that awesome? And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And our job in these last days is to take the message of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So when you read Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7, you get these glimpses into the throne room of God, eternity, future. What do you see there? You see every tribe, every tongue, every nation. You ready for this? Jesus is not coming back until every tribe, every tongue, every nation has been reached by the gospel and are seated around the throne room of God. Amen? So we stop worried about our, oh man, my 401k, boy, I sure hope I can get through life safe, soft, easy, and comfortable. What you should be doing is saying, how can we get the gospel to every single nation? Because you're a part of it. God, the call, we have a responsibility to be a part of this final mission that's affixed on God's calendar where Christ will return and judgment will re- be rendered. Which is number three, right? There's a coming day of judgment because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, which by the way means perfection. You guys have heard me say this before. You don't get to heaven by being good. You get to heaven by being what? Perfect. And how are you perfect? You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. How are we perfect? We're perfect by grace through faith when we receive Christ the gospel and his perfect works are gifted to us by grace through faith. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by, by man whom he's appointed. That's Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Church, this is not a trifling matter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ authenticated his claims of being the son of God and the conqueror of sin and death. It also assures us that God is fully capable of raising the dead. And it reminds us that there will be a day of judgment. And that time is already fixed on God's calendar. Therefore, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want to encourage you, do not put it off another day. There's no guarantees. The book of Hebrews in dealing with the same context says today, 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 multiple times in the book of Hebrews is the day of salvation. Man, repent of your sin today. Stop playing games with God. Stop playing games with, I there's a God, but he's unknowable. Or stop rising self as the idol. Like I'll decide what I'm going to believe. And I want to encourage you. It is the resurrected Christ that authenticated his claims. And one day he's coming. One day he will judge the living and the dead. And you will give an account. And you'll give an account of this message that you heard about Christ and ignored it. And if you're a Christian this morning, and the world is going to give an account and, and, and you're on mission. And when you leave the room today, you go out into the world and you go this week and you're on mission, then you get to take the name and fame of Christ to the ends of the world. This is our ultimate task is to make disciples in all nations. And really, it should be our consuming purpose of our time, talent and treasure. And you say, oh, Pastor Sean, I, 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 I have a job. I work. Ready? God is holding you responsible to steward what he's called you to steward. 
So you have a job, praise God for that. And you should use that job to make income for your home and raise your home and be promoting the gospel in your home. That is who you're supposed to make disciples to. And you should have a little, the Bible says this, you should have a little leftover to share, to help with your church and to help with others as we as a church pull our time, talent and treasure together so that we can fund and fuel the mission of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And next we're gonna talk about how we're doing that specifically as a church, and he has sent you into the workplace to be around lost people and to be playing football and instruments with your kids together in the community. You are out there and you are on mission and here's the deal, God's given you a job, he's paying you to do it. Isn't that great news? Like you ain't gotta run around banging on the door of church and go, I wanna be a missionary and I gotta go raise support. You are a missionary, God's given you the job, now go be on mission. And here's the deal. Our job is to introduce people to Christ. Our job is not to save them. That is God's job. Because now I'm going to move quickly. Point number two, the responses of men and women. We see three different responses here. So uh, Paul presents the gospel, Acts 17, 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some people did what? what they do, church? Is it up there? Oh, it's not up there. Can we get it up there? Yeah, there we go. Now, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some people did what? what they do? They mocked, right? Anybody feel like you go out in the community and get mocked? Anybody? Okay, good. Just me. Just me. Everybody else know. All right. Hey, you get mocked. So did the apostle Paul. But others will hear you and say, uh, hear and say, man, we want to hear you about this again. And so some will mock. There'll be some say, this is ridiculous. Letter B, some will show interest. I'm going to move, skip past that first Corinthians passage. Some will show interest. They're going to investigate. Hey, you know what? I want to hear more about this. I want to come to church with you. Maybe they came to church with you. Like, Please don't preach about money. Please don't preach about money. Please don't preach about money. Because right? uh, they want to investigate. And let her see. Some will immediately believe. Some will immediately believe. From Acts chapter 17, verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. Some men joined him and believed. So here's the word. Here, here it is, church. Ready? We don't change anybody's hearts. It's not, our, it's not your job. It's not your job to change anybody's heart. That's the job of the Holy Spirit and of God. Our job is to be the mouthpiece of the gospel. I'm gonna read you a passage of scripture this morning and then I'm gonna frame it up and then we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day, okay? This passage is in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses one to six. One of my favorite passages of the book of Ezekiel. And by the way, the worship team, if you guys want to make your way out, you can do that, okay? So Ezekiel 33, one to six says this. The word of the Lord came to me. This is the prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. So he would, a watchman would sit up on the wall, okay? And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and he blows the trumpet and warns the people, and then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and he did not take the warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. Verse six. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and he does not blow the trumpet, 
so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of that, that, them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hands. Let me make sure you understand what this passage is about. In Bible times, the way that you would protect your city was to build a wall around your city. It was like the best defense system that you could have, right? And then like commerce, agriculture, all that would take place outside the city. And there'd be a paid watchman and the watchman would be up in the watchtower and there'd be the walled city. And then his job was when an enemy were to come against the land, he only had one job. He was to sound the trumpet. He was to sound the alarm, whatever the alarm system was. He'd blow the trumpet. And the people then had a decision to make. Oh, there must be something happening and they would come inside the wall for safety, okay? And what God is telling Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I've I've positioned you as a watchman. You sound the alarm. If they come into the safety, great. If they don't, that's on them. But if you don't sound the alarm, they're going to die in their iniquity, but their blood is responsible to you. I think the application is obvious, don't you? I mean, why are you still here? Why doesn't God just take you to heaven? See, we've got it in our heads that, man, God left us here to get through life safe, soft, easy, and comfortable so that maybe the last five or six or eight years of my life, I can just retire and play some golf or whatever, right? Like, I don't know, but you're here because you are positioned as a watchman on the wall. And you're to sound the alarm. There's a fixed appointed day of judgment that is indeed coming when Christ will return and you will be judged in righteousness. And your only hope is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ gifted to you by grace through faith. And you're worried about whatever, fill in the blank that you're worried about. You're a watchman to your children. You're a watchman to your aunt and uncle. You're a watchman to your coworker. You're a watchman to your roommate. You're a watchman to your college friends. You're a watchman on the wall. It's not your job to save them, but it is your job to tell them about Jesus, to blow the trumpet. And maybe they'll mock. And maybe they'll say, I got to hear more about this. Or maybe they'll believe the response is not up to you. Your job is to blow the trumpet. Amen. And I think about it, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what Judgment Day is going to look like, but I wonder on Judgment Day, where you're called to be a missionary in your circle of influence, at work, in the community, the restaurant you eat at, I wonder if on Judgment Day, the people that don't know Christ will look over at you and go, like, what the heck? I don't know. But it's enough to say, you know what? When we leave here today, we have the greatest message on the planet. Amen. God sent his son to take away our sin and our shame and our rebellion. And he rose again. Right? Jesus God. Let's read it like we're half dead. Jesus God. Jesus died on cross my sins. Jesus rose again from the dead. Bodily. Why does he bore me with that? Like, that's amazing. Amen? One day you're going to get a funeral. And if you have a funeral as a Christian, you go, this body is a seed, 1 Corinthians 15, that's planted. And when Christ returns, it's going to spring 
back with a glorified body that's going to live forever. Amen, Marty? You just had knee surgery, right? right? I'm ready for that one. That is the message we herald. Some will mock. Some will say, I want to hear more. Some won't believe. You're a watchman on the wall. Amen, church? By the way, that's really cool. Don't, don't be like, oh my gosh. Like, it's really cool. You have a purpose for which God left you here this week. So here's what I want you to do. Ready? Last week I said, let's pray for three people. I had you list three people. Here's how we're going to pray this morning. I want you in your mind to get one of those three people. And I want you to pray very specifically this week. Hey God, I want to be a watchman on the wall for this person. I actually want to talk to them about spiritual things. How many of you are terrified to pray that prayer right now? Right? We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. That's why we started this series with prayer. This is your kingdom come. This is God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let's get that one person in our mind's eye. Heavenly Father, what a great morning to worship you. Heavenly Father, forgive us for when we get distracted about so many things, God, like so many things distract us. But you left us here for the season called life to be watchmen. To sound the alarm, to to herald the good news of the gospel, their safety when the enemy comes, the enemy of death and sin. You, O Christ, are the walled city that protects us. And all we have to do is tell people, hey, you can can find protection. We're watchmen on the wall. That's what you've called us to be. So God, we've we've got that name of that person we're praying about. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a neighbor, God. Maybe it's somebody where our kids play sports, whatever, God, like, We're going out in the community and God, we're asking that this week we could talk about spiritual things and maybe even discuss, man, this, let me, let me introduce you to Jesus. We love him. He saved us. Let me tell you about him. God, then we're going to leave the results up to you. We're going to see what you're going to do. The apostle Paul said in first Corinthians, you know, I planted, the Apollos planted, I've watered. God, give the increase. We're going to ask that you do the increase, oh God. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And so let's go out singing this morning, and I want us to go out being the watchman of the wall. If you need prayer, our prayer team's here. If you'd like to know how to follow Jesus this morning, man, they would love to talk to you about that. And so let's go out singing about the exaltation of Christ in our lives. Let's stand and sing together.